Welcome, one and all. My name's Jerry, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to have you guys uh, part of Northwest this morning. As, uh, as Matt mentioned, we are going to be in the book of Acts chapter 17. I invite you to turn there or open up your device and uh, get to that section of Scripture. And in the meantime, I got a question for you. Anyone ever try to read somebody else's mind or like... You've uh, maybe gone through scrolling through your Facebook and you see that one magician guy who's like, I can read your mind and let me tell you how. And you click on it and he says something like, uh, think of a number from one to 10, multiply it by two, then add four to it, then divide by two, and then uh, count the alphabet, the number that you have, and then pick a country that starts with that letter. And you know what I mean? Goes through this big, long formula and is like, are you thinking of a gray elephant from Denmark? You're like, yes, I was. How did you do that? Somebody reading your mind, okay? And like, you know that there's a trick to it and a formula and everything. We get all that, but I want us to think about that idea of reading somebody else's mind. You ever read the mind of your spouse? Like, you kind of know what they have in mind, you know? Like, I'll be to Becca, like, uh, you, know, you know, can you drive Caden to soccer or whatever? I'll be like, you know what, honey? Why don't you go ahead and do it, and I'll stay here and fold the laundry. Are you sure it's going to be like, you know, 45 minutes? Oh, that's totally fine. I'll just, I'll stay here. And is there a game on tonight, you know, that you want to watch? All right, yes, there is. But that idea of reading somebody's mind, how many people would want that opportunity or that special power to read someone else's mind? Would you want that? Would you? I would not want that in the least bit, and here's why. Because I know how my mind is. And, you know, like, fortunately, there's a lot of editing that goes on when you first think something before it actually makes its way down to your, to your mouth, right? So somebody walks in and you're like, wow, that's quite a get-up this morning. Oh, someone got a haircut. Ha! Huh. You know what I mean? I wasn't looking at anybody in particular, I promise. But I wouldn't want uh, any of you to, I wouldn't want to know what you're thinking because who knows what's going on in your mind, you know? But I wanted to bring that up this morning as we talk about this idea of knowing someone else's thoughts, knowing someone else's mind. Because what we're going to be talking about this morning from the book of Acts chapter 17 is about the sovereignty of God. In other words, the mind of God. You know, Scripture talks about his ways are so much higher than our ways, and who can possibly know the mind of God? And I think sometimes we want to know that. We wish that we could read his mind and know what he had planned or know why he allowed certain circumstances to interrupt the flow of our life. But here from Acts chapter 17, we're going to dive into a couple of very key principles that are going to help us understand that although we don't know the mind of God, we still trust that he is sovereign and that he's got a plan and he is worthy of our confidence. If you've got your copy of scripture open and if you're taking notes, I do want to let you know that basically we've just got four different concepts that we can kind of grasp here from Acts chapter 17 and we'll... Uh, dive into this and uh, talk about application and, um, and, and what we can learn from it. So here we are uh, in the life of the early church. Again, if you're new with us, we've been diving into this whole idea 2,000 years ago of this thing that was established that Jesus founded called the church. We know it's not a building. We know it's a gathering of people, a community of people together. 
So what are the characteristics of the church? What are the characteristics of the leaders of the church? And how can we learn from that and understand that? And so uh, as we dive in here to Acts chapter 17, the first thing that I want you to write down or, or be aware of is simply this, that the culture needed to be upended. The culture needed to be upended. This was 2,000 years ago, very different culture, and it was a very godless culture, a very confused culture, and it needed a change. And the early church was going to be at the center point of that change, at the center of that upending. So a couple of key things that I want to mention to you here as we dive in a little bit. Let's start reading in verse 1. This is Paul and Silas. They're in, in the city called Thessalonica. It says this, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And you need to understand that they went first to the synagogues, right? So these are two already religious people, people that believe in the Old Testament. And he's revealing to them that Jesus is the one that all of your scriptures were pointing to. Now, verse 4 is key. Some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and notice this, and not a few of the leading women. Okay, that's important. Skip down to, uh, to verse 12 of Acts chapter 17. Many of them therefore believed, this is in a different city, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So I want you guys to notice that two separate times the women are put first in importance as far as who was coming to know Jesus and be a follower. Remember, upending culture. Remember what culture was like in so many parts of the Middle East way back then, as it is today. That women are not valued. They're seen as less than men. They're seen as, you know, just subservient. Jesus came on the scene and with the early disciples and held women to an incredible prominence. We need to recognize that here this morning. You remember who were the first witnesses at the tomb, right? It was women, and women's testimonies weren't even held up in a court of law in that day. And yet those are the ones that God orchestrated to be the eyewitnesses. Same thing, Acts chapter 17, not a few leading women led the way. That's big, culture upended value for men and women in the eyes of God in in all kinds of different avenues it's pretty incredible now let's look at verse six okay now just a little bit of backdrop again talking about the culture being turned upside down Uh, some some Jews didn't like what Paul and Silas were teaching city was in an uproar they grabbed this guy named Jason because they thought he knew where uh where these disciples were hiding but let's Catch it up in uh, verse 6 here. When they could not find them, that's the disciples, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. 
man, that would be a great verse to highlight, to, to star, to underline in your Bible. These men who have turned the world upside down. Turn the world on its ear. That's what we're a part of. This was the beginning. This is what the church did. Countercultural values that separated them so much so that these men said, the world has gone crazy. And I want to remind you, we mentioned this once, maybe six months ago, but it's so prominent, so important for us, of five different characteristics of the first century church that separated them from their culture. Okay, let's think about this, and let's think about this as, if this is true of you and us today. The first one is this. They forgave people that hurt them. Now remember, in that society, in that culture, it was very much a shame and honor culture. In other words, you love me, you love my family, I'm going to honor you. You somehow hurt me or you somehow shame me, I am going to shame you and I'm going to get revenge on you. And Jesus came on the scene and said, hey, you know what? Don't just love the people that love you. Love the people that persecute you. Forgive the people that hurt you. That was so foreign. But that's what the early church was known for. Number two, check this one out. They practiced sexual exclusivity. We think that society is bad today. You know, sometimes you're watching commercials or some ad comes on for a movie and it's just really racy, you know what I mean? You're like, oh my gosh, the world is so horrible and where have all the moral values gone? And, and, and you know, you, you kind of get that angst as a parent and as a Christian and as somebody in America. And we think that, man, we're, we're such an amoral society, an immoral society. I'll tell you what, man, a little world history will tell you 2,000 years ago, it was a whole lot worse back then. Okay, we've talked to you guys a little bit about that. There was whole entire religions and whole entire temples set up for prostitution. Like that's how you went to a worship service was to go sleep with a prostitute. Okay, and it was socially acceptable and encouraged and church growth. Like, hey, that temple's really growing, you know. Like, man, look at all the visitors this week. But just unbelievable immorality. That's the life that they lived. There was, there was not a holiness to sexuality and sensuality, there was a casualness, a self-seeking pleasure, and it didn't matter how many partners you had. It didn't matter. It was all acceptable. And Christians came on the scene and said, actually, we believe that sexuality is a gift from God that should be shared only with a spouse, and that's going to make our relationship stronger. And this is the way that God created it, and that was so foreign to them. How about this third one? They were generous with their money and with their poor and with other people's poor. Okay, that's big because in that culture, it was all about you and your family. Uh, as a matter of fact, a historian who was defending early Christianity in the first couple of centuries wrote this. He said, Christians are different from our neighbors in this. We share our tables with everyone but not our beds. And that was exactly the opposite from everybody else. Because they were saying, we'll share our beds with anyone and everyone. That's free game. But our tables, our food, our generosity, we don't share this with anyone. We share this with our family, in our own, in our race, in our culture, in our people. That's it. 
Isn't that fascinating? Christians upended that and said, hey, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. If you're needy and we have something, we're sharing it. That's what we do. Incredible. Number four, they were against abortion and infant exposure. Even thousands of years ago, the value of an unborn life or a newborn life was threatened. Because in that culture, if it wasn't the right gender, or if it had some abnormality, or if it it, it didn't look right, or if there was some problem, they would simply discard it on, on the top of a trash heap and leave babies there to die. And Christians were known for hanging around in those places and for going up and for rescuing deformed babies and unwanted babies and being fathers to the fatherless in a home for orphans. That's what they were known for back then. And that's what we should be known for right now. How about this one? They had a unique perspective on suffering. Suffering wasn't something to get angry at. Suffering was something for the early church that was purifying. Notice all those passages in scripture that says, you know, Lord, I want to I uh, join you in the fellowship of your suffering. And even as we talked about the book of Acts, it's like how many times was Paul and Peter and John and later Paul like, we are thankful that we were considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the Lord. Totally different view than everybody else in the culture about it. That's how they upended their culture. So as we really start to get into the text, all right, so what happened here? Why is this important? Well, point number two, where did all this begin? What was the catalyst? What was the hinge point for what the account that we're going to get into? It all started with a spirit that was provoked. Let's start reading in verse uh, 16. Now here was Paul, and while he was waiting... At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I want you to underline that phrase, his spirit was provoked within him. Here's Paul, and he's waiting for his his brothers to come, uh, Silas and Timothy, and he's just sitting there, and he's just looking around, and he's just taking it in, and he's seeing Idol after idol after idol after idol. And there was something about that that so bothered him. This idea of provoking means to pester, to be stirred up. The one picture is kind of like a bunch of coals where you're just kind of stirring them all up and getting them together and just kind of agitating them and blowing on them. You know, any Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts here in the mix? A few of you, right? Like, that's what you do to provoke a fire And Paul's looking around and he's seeing all of these idols and all these lost people, all these confused people worshiping those idols and his spirit is provoked within him. He was bothered by that. Keep on reading in verse uh, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Remember the people that are religious, yes. And the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting? But what I really want you guys to think about this morning is this question. Does it bother you? Is your spirit provoked when you see misdirected worship? When you see people confused, when you see people chasing after and giving their lives for something that ultimately won't satisfy? Does that bother you? It physically bothered Paul. You remember a few years ago, there was a viral challenge we've heard about, you know, the Tide Pod challenge and the invisible box challenge and what's the one where you're driving and you're like, Kiki, do you love me challenge? But there's all these different viral challenges. But you know what? A few years back, I remember there was one that just made me so angry. And it was called the Blasphemy Challenge. I don't know if any of you guys remember this. I grabbed a screenshot from YouTube. But the challenge was from this angry atheist organization that targeted teen websites and, uh, you know, teen magazines and stuff like that. And it was saying, you know what, you don't need to believe in God. And as a matter of fact, let's just get it out there in the open right now. So based on teenagers, we want you to record yourself in front of your computer saying, I deny once and for all the Holy Spirit, and I'm not afraid to go to hell. So bring it on, God. Send me there. I deny the Holy Spirit once and for all. And tens of thousands, if not more, and people just like this guy right here, did that very thing. And I can remember just watching clip after clip after clip of these ordinary, nice-looking, like, great people who were just saying this blasphemous thing. And I just wanted to reach out to every single one of them and sit down with them and say, you don't need to do that. Like, let's talk about this. It stirred me up. Are you bothered when you see people in idolatrous living and in adulterous living and in greedy living and worshiping all these other things? Paul sure was. There's another kind of stirred up. It's not just stirred up in anger. There's a, there's a place for that. But there's also another kind of stirred up where it's a broken heart. I came across a story in 1947 of a guy named Robert Pierce he worked for a religious nonprofit organization called Youth for Christ. And his mission was to evangelize the world with the gospel. So this young evangelist started towards China with only enough money to buy a ticket to Honolulu, Hawaii. It's not a bad stopover. But on the trip, he met a woman named Tina who was a teacher. She introduced him to a battered and abandoned child named White. Unable to care for the child herself, she asked Pierce, what are you going to do about this orphan? And Pierce gave the woman the last $5 that he had. And he agreed to send the same amount each month to help the woman care for the child. So Pierce eventually made it to China where thousands made public commitments as followers of Christ during the four months of evangelistic rallies there. But while he was there, Pierce saw widespread hunger. He felt intense compassion for these people. And Pierce later wrote down these words in the front of his Bible. Lord, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Dragging a camera across Asia, 
he took pictures and as he came back to America, he showed the resulting pictures to church audiences all over. He asked for money to help these children. He showed their faces and he begged Christians to adopt one. And in 1950, he incorporated this personal crusade and called it World Vision. One journalist wrote about Bob Pierce. Pierce cannot conceal his true emotions. He seems to me to be one of the few naturally, uncontrollably honest men I have ever met. One other pastor said, Pierce prayed more earnestly and inopportunely than anyone else I've ever known, and it was as though prayer burned within him. Bob Pierce functioned from a broken heart. I just love that last phrase. And as we think about Paul in this situation, taking advantage of the time, he's looking around, his spirit is stirred up, and he is functioning from a broken heart. And it spurred him into action. Point number three, what do we see? What do we gather from this? What do we learn from Paul? Common ground was established. Start reading in verse 22. Here's what he says. So then Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Notice how he's kind of like buttering up a little bit and like establishing some common ground with them. Right? Certainly you see at times in Scripture, some of the prophets and everything, and even Jesus, the way he would deal with people at times was in a very straightforward, prophetic, you better turn and repent right now, you evil generation, you know, like that sort of thing. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way, establishing common ground. Verse 23, for as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So what therefore you worship is unknown, this I will proclaim to you. I love that he took this opportunity in realizing the temperature of the situation, that common ground was established and he was going to use that to get the gospel into their minds. Would you believe that as we think about, if you are a believer here this morning, as you think about people that are not Christians, that ultimately a lot of us are still asking the exact same questions, and we have a lot of common ground? There was a census that was taken in 2017, and this was a census of Wake County. So this is us. This is, this is our people. This is not somewhere else. But they were saying, you know, what are the biggest things that you find yourself wrestling with? What are your biggest concerns? What are your biggest anxieties and fears? And some of those things were finding life direction, having a fulfilling marriage, parenting skills, having a satisfying career or job, and, and what am I going to do when I retire? So in other words, if you just kind of summarize all those, I created three Fs, you know, we pastors love alliteration at times. So these are kind of the three things that many people are asking and fearful about. Fulfillment, what's ultimately going to make me happy? How am I really going to be satisfied in life? 
finances. Will I have enough? There's a, a scarcity mentality that is constantly looking at the bottom line, looking at your retirement, looking at your savings, looking at my investments, being like, all right, I got to make sure this world's so crazy. I got to make sure that I got enough in the future. What's going to happen when I get old? What's going to happen when I die? These are the questions burning in our neighbors' hearts and minds. We've got that common ground. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus came to give us the answers to all of these things, right? I mean, fulfillment? Jesus said, I've come that you're going to have life and you're going to have the most abundant life ever. I've come to give you living water, not this water that just you're going to thirst again and it's going to be gone. It's going to be eternally satisfying. And finances, why do you worry about what you're going to wear tomorrow? Why do you worry about these things? The Lord's going to take care of you in the future. What's going to happen? We as believers, we've got this security if we know that we've stepped, stepped out on faith and believe in Jesus that our eternity is secure and we're going to be forever with the Lord. That common ground was so established. And I guess I just want us to think, what, what are those common things with, with neighbors of yours, with friends of yours? They asking these questions? There's so many that really do have a belief in God. One of my neighbors came up to me and they were so proud and they thought that I would be proud of them because they're like, yeah, well, we're looking to sell our house and, and I bought a, uh, a St. Joseph to bury in our front yard. And I said, come again now? I had never heard of this tradition, but some of you are nodding your heads, you know what I'm talking about. So apparently, and I looked it up, you could buy, there he is, St. Joseph. I don't know why he's facing like the opposite way. It seems kind of like he should, you know, let's see what this guy really looks like. But apparently you're supposed to bury him head down, like upside down, facing the house. Or I don't know, there's just kind of a whole formula for it. And certainly I am not making fun of anybody, but I'm just simply using this one illustration that there's a lot of people that have a whole lot of ideas and are willing to do a whole lot of things because they believe that there is something else out there. They believe that. And so this was the common ground that she wanted to share with me. And so I was able to say like, oh, that's really interesting. Well, let's chase this down a little bit. And we began to talk about God and I'm not, didn't want to, you know, alienate her, but certainly pointing her to scripture and the Bible and the truth and, and the assurance that we can have and that sort of thing. But common ground is possible for us. And finally, man, the, the right hook at the end of Paul's message here is, is the challenge to us all that circumstance is viewed as purposeful. Our circumstance, where we are, what we're doing, who we know, this present day, this hour, this minute is viewed as purposeful. Pick up the reading in verse 24, Acts 17. Here's what Paul said. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Remember, he's talking to all these people that are serving all of these different gods and idols. He's saying, you know what? Yeah, you're serving them food. You're, you're providing for them. Our God doesn't need that. 
He's the one that gives you life and breath. He doesn't need you to give him something. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, which by the way, that's saying to a people that are very much racially exclusive, thinking that they are the greatest because of their pedigree. He's saying, oh, by the way, we're all one race. That's what he's saying. From one man, he made every nation to live on all of the face of the earth. Underline this, circle this, do whatever you need to do. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Your address matters. Your work group matters. Your study group in school matters. It's not haphazard. It is absolutely ordained by God. Why? Verse 27, that they, that is these idolaters, these people worshiping everything else, these people that have common ground with us, these people that have questions and have issues and and their hearts are seeking truth, that all of them should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And guys, I love it so much because the picture here is like that they're groping around in the darkness and just trying to feel their way out. And Paul's saying, I'm the one that can see. I'm the one who's got the light and God has ordained it that I'm going to be here, right here, right now with you in this spot so that I can show you the light of the gospel. It's pretty incredible to think about. We grab a screenshot of a map application that we have that basically this is our membership of uh, Northwest Community Church. This is where we live. Each one of these dots and you can see that little star up there is roughly where we are right here. And man if we could zoom in you can see that monstrous cluster immediately to the left of that. But man look they're all spread out everywhere. Every one of those represents an apartment or a house or a condo, a dwelling place. And what Paul's saying is, don't you realize, even the very boundary lines of your house, the Lord in his sovereignty has you there for a reason. He's got conversations he wants you to have. He's got ministry that he wants you to step into. He's got people that he wants you to impact. And we love bragging on our people here at Northwest and read this this week and asked permission from my friend Michelle Lee to share it because I do believe that this beautifully illustrates the ongoing and unfolding mission of God in her life. So here's what she says. This story is all about God preparing me for a mission I didn't yet know that I had. That's an incredible statement by itself. A few years ago, our director of student ministry got up on stage and announced this new mission trip that we would be doing. It was a week at a camp in Missouri where we would serve children of all different abilities. Many were classified as autistic. Some had Down syndrome. Some were blind and many other conditions. But for that week, they were not defined by their disease or condition. 
They did all the things you'd expect to do at a camp, from archery to canoeing. So I thought, wow, that sounds cool. But I had no vacation days available and had no idea how I could possibly go. But the very next day, Cisco announced all employees would be given an extra week of leave to use specifically for community service. What insane timing. I don't know how that could have been clearer, so I went. I have so many amazing stories from that time. Spiritual growth, relationships built. But it's important to know that this was the very first time in my life I was immersed in the world of special needs. I spent the week as a cabin mom loving this group of girls who had a wide range of needs. I learned to talk and engage with them differently and in a much more authentic and meaningful way. I loved them unconditionally and I learned that that was the key. So fast forward to teaching. One of my greatest challenges and greatest joys in the classroom is meeting students where they are in life and in learning. I had a student during my first semester who was autistic. She and I bonded over our shared love for everything Marvel comic related. At first, it was just a comment about her t-shirt. Then it was about the characters, then about movie plot lines. And soon, they were having, soon we were having full conversations about this topic we loved. She continued to come to my class even after the semester ended. And we continued our fangirl talks until one day she came to me and said, Miss Lee, I would like to start a club. I think a club would be a great way to make friends, and I want it to be for Marvel and DC Comics, and I want you to be the advisor. What an amazing courage it took for her to ask that question. So we talked about it, and I told her if she wanted to start it, I would be the advisor and her biggest cheerleader, but she would need to present all the details to her peers at an interest meeting. So the day of the interest meeting came, she was nervous, and so was I. All I could do was pray that kids would actually show up and that they would be kind to her. We had rehearsed her PowerPoint and the time had come. 14 students showed up. She got up in front of those 14 students, presented her vision for the club, and asked people to join. I was unbelievably proud of her and the growth she had achieved. Now I am the proud advisor of the Marvel and DC Comic Club. Before Camp Barnabas, I would never have been able to do this. I would have had difficulty having those early conversations. Guys, I guess the point is when you look at your story and the experiences that God's given you, and you look at your present circumstance and the people that are in your sphere of influence we can't help but see that god has orchestrated those things for us to step out and engage there's people all around and is our spirit provoked they're worshiping the wrong things there are questions that are burning in their hearts and we've got the answers there are risks to be taken and god has said that we've got the courage there's evil to be overcome, and God has equipped us to handle it. Why? People are the prize. Changed hearts are the key. And people are wandering around in the darkness, waiting for somebody to show them 
and light. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for your orchestration. Lord, we thank you that although we don't know your mind and we can't read your mind, Lord, we recognize that you are sovereign and that you are in control. Father, in the same way that you orchestrated the events of Acts chapter 17, you have orchestrated this Sunday for us. And you've allowed the people to be in here that need to be in here to hear this message from your word. And Lord, we pray that hearts would be provoked, that spirits would be moved, that hearts would be broken. And God, we do pray that you would just allow us to take advantage of these circumstances, God, and that we might be the kind of counter-cultural church that people would look at and say they are turning the world upside down. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the powerful name of Jesus by which all of these things can happen. It's in his precious name.